Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Catholic Education Show. My name is Kimberly Begg. I am the editor of Catholic School Playbook, which is a project of the Ortner Family Foundation, and I am joined by my host, Sean Peterson. Sean is the president of Catholic Education Partners, which is the Catholic voice for education choice. Our guest today is Tom Carroll, who for many of our listeners will need no introduction. Tom is the superintendent of Catholic schools of the Archdiocese of Boston, where he launched the St. Thomas More Teaching Fellowship, which recruits and trains faithfully Catholic men and women to teach in Boston's Catholic schools. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be on. Tom, welcome. Uh, we always open with a prayer, so we'll open with a short prayer, and then we'll get right into it, hear from you. So, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just lift uh, this show up to you today. We're grateful for Tom being with us, grateful for his work in Boston, and we're just grateful for the gift of Catholic education. So we just pray for those um, involved in Catholic education, for those uh, superintendents and principals and teachers, mothers and fathers, and for the students, um, that they may um, come to know, love, and serve you more. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Tom. Well, welcome. Uh, good to see you, my friend. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. Um, my question, I thought about this yesterday. You know, you and I have known each other for several years and we've gotten to spend some nice time together. Cla gotten to spend some time with uh, Tom's lovely wife, Claudia Kimberly, who is just, um, she is just a joy uh, to be with. Um, but so I've gotten to spend some time with you guys, but I've never asked you, um, you don't come to the role of, superintendent kind of the traditional way you're in a major archdiocese um but i've never asked you how did you how did you come to this role not not kind of coming up through the ranks of catholic education yeah chuck i'm the accidental superintendent there's nothing about my life that suggested that this is the job that i would have i'm now in, uh, finishing up my fifth year mm -hmm. as superintendent before that i was lobbying on school choice um in new york mostly not the most fertile ground for a school choice. And uh, when we hit a dead end there after a pretty spirited effort, I decided I went to my board and said I, I was going to go and do something else, not knowing what that something else would be. And I think it's a lesson I say to my kids, but to everybody, which is just be open to what God's plan is for you. Um, a lot of people try to control every step of their life. And uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time when I got the job, but looking back, I think it was providential that I showed up at this particular moment. As you know, and one of the reasons you're an advocate for school choice, the trajectory for Catholic education from the 1960s has been pretty grim. We had more than 5 million students, now down to 1.6 million. Cardinal Dolan once said, using kind of his dark Irish sense of humor, uh, that Catholic education has become hospice care, which is we know the patient's going to die. We're kind of managing uh, you know, the way out for all of the schools. Um, I, now, he was joking and trying to make a point, but um, I thought it was a great opportunity given the different skills I had as a nonprofit executive. I'd run a bunch of Catholic scholarship organizations and I'd run a, a highly successful urban network of charter schools in Albany to take all of those skills, which were not, I, I never went to Catholic school because I was not Catholic as a child. I converted about uh, 20 years ago. Uh, never was a teacher, never was a principal, never worked in a diocese. I joked if I had worked in the diocese, I probably wouldn't have applied for the job, the Catholic Church being the world's oldest bureaucracy. Um, but I thought it was uh, what the church needed, somebody 
who believed in what the church teaches, which is ultimately a joyful and optimistic view uh, of the world and where we're all headed. There's nothing to be walking around with a sour face if you actually believe in Catholicism. And somebody who is willing to impart a sense of optimism uh, and some business skills, frankly, to Catholic education. So uh, that led me into the job. And then I joked to a friend, uh, I can't believe they gave me the keys to the car. <laughs> Where should we drive this right now? And so I had to take a, a lot of time up front and some humility to uh, take time to listen to everybody who was in the system and, and to people that had both benefited from it and people who had been stranded by the disruptions over time, including parents who in some cases had, um, had kids experienced two or three closures of Catholic schools across their lifetime. And so, and then at that point, I came up with an agenda of what needed to be done next. And I've been going like gangbusters ever since. I love that you started with listening, Tom. So what were you hearing from teachers and principals and parents uh, during those early days of your tenure as superintendent in Boston? If, first, um, most people believed with what Cardinal Dolan said. So a lot of the people that involved in this enterprise are doing it as long as they can, but they don't have hope and optimism. So I, I try to project uh, in everything that I do um, that I actually believe because I do that we could turn this whole thing around. And uh, one of the people in the building that I'm working in and sitting in now says, why do I see you smiling all the time? And meaning that given like, yeah, every once in a while we have to close the school or there's bad news or something strange happens in a particular school, like I should be walking around totally stressed out. It's the best job I ever had in my life. And uh, I, I've, you know, we, we are the eighth largest uh, Catholic school system in the country, 32,000 kids, about 4,000 employees. Uh, it's a really big enterprise and about uh, just under 100 schools. And we're from top to bottom is the, the New Hampshire border on the top. People think we're just the city of Boston. I actually thought that when I originally applied for the job. And then I did some research before the interview. But the top border is New Hampshire and the bottom is Plymouth, Massachusetts and the Mayflower. And going from Boston Harbor or Haba, as they say here, you go westward about an hour and a half before you hit another diocese. 70% of all the people in Catholic schools in Massachusetts are in this archdiocese specifically. Um, so it's a pretty big enterprise, um, but there's a, there's a lot to be done there. And the biggest thing is people wanted, people have to believe in order. If you look at what college costs, now I was talking to somebody the other day, they were going to a school and it wasn't even an Ivy League school, it was $80,000 a year. So Kimberly, you know, just you have a number of children and, and they're young. Uh, you try to fathom like what could tuition be like by the time they're 18 years old? And that times four times the number of children you have. And so I think people are legitimately around the kitchen table saying, how can I possibly afford this? And if I'm going to make that and then we live in a very expensive real estate market. So it's San Francisco, New York, then Boston. So out of all the places in the country. So that's another factor for people here. So they look at the enormity that they're like, if we're going to do this, we want to make sure they're willing to make the sacrifice, but they want to make sure that the schools are going to be around. They want to make sure that they're going to be actually Catholic. If they're not going to be Catholic, we have astonishing public schools in the Boston area. Why would you spend a dime going to a Catholic school if it's not really a Catholic school, right? And they're very, and part of that, and it's a big part of it, even for people who are not Catholic, who attend our schools, they want their kids to be schooled in virtue. 
They want their kids to all grow up to be respectful people who we call them, you know, cardinal theological virtues and stuff, but people just call them virtues, right? Or are the different words that they use for it. Some people call them character, what have you. Um, but it basically comes down to what everybody was taught, you know, when they were little kids in Catholic school. So that's really important to people. And the other part of Catholicism is community. We're not a, you know, just one person talking to God and there's no, there's a sense of community is embedded in our faith. So we go to church with other people, not just by ourselves. And uh, that's really important. And then I, the other thing is a lot of people on the parish side complain that the schools that the parish was paying for, in many cases, had no relation to the actual parish. And so I've tried very hard working with pastors to improve the relations between schools and parishes and to underscore to everybody that I've helped hire as a principal that the number one goal of every Catholic school is the evangelization of children in the Catholic faith specifically. And our goal, we have you know, 32,000 souls in our custody. Our job is to set them on the path to eternal salvation. We win a football championship, but we don't get them to eternal salvation. Like you're not going to do well at the gates of St. Peter. So I think people need to, people have been seduced by the broader culture and it's also infected. And we can have a longer conversation, but how, how teachers are selected, how they're educated, who educates them and the million ways that the secular culture and in some cases, I, I never walked around talking about Satan before I took this job, but there's satanic influences in our schools that I think people should be transparent about. What are some of those satanic influences? I used to worry, frankly, about mostly about science teachers contradicting theology teachers. Now what I really worry about is school counselors. So mm. after COVID, massive amount of, and, and Sean thinks about this a lot in the school choice context, there's kind of a, a bargain we're making here to get school choice money, tax credit scholarships, ESA, that the government won't come in and regulate the schools more. But in COVID, we got, you know, and, and I was part of the active effort to lobby for this money. So, so uh, but there was one aspect I didn't understand. They listed all the categories we could get COVID money for. And if we didn't get COVID money, we frankly would have been wiped out. But, but uh, one of the categories was mental health services which makes sense, but what there isn't an adequate supply at the moment of psychologists and school counselors who believe in Catholicism. Yeah. So if you think of the other thing is, and remember this is Boston, right? So ground zero for the abuse scandal. So you think of the way a counseling session works out, it's a private discussion behind closed doors that's highly confidential. And I, I'm going like, are you, so I, first time I heard this from a principal, like, you don't know what they're talking about. Well, it's confidential. It's like, you know, going to a psychiatrist. I'm going like behind closed doors with a little kid with no supervision in Boston. Like, are you out of your mind? Like what could possibly go wrong? Right. But what the danger is, is I'm not actually uh, worried on the abuse side because that's been basically tamped down in Boston a long time ago, long before I showed up but it's more theological abuse, by which I mean is the secular answer and the Catholic answer is not the same on so many different issues. So if somebody wants to set up a club, for example, that wouldn't be appropriate in a Catholic school, the Catholic response theologically is different than the secular response was, hey, yeah, let's do it, right? And then similarly, if you decide, for example, on the gender issue, a boy decides he wants to become a girl, the answer on the Catholic side is different 
than it is on the secular side, right? If you uh, accidentally get pregnant uh, and you're contemplating terminating the pregnancy, the secular answer is different than the Catholic answer. If you're enduring suffering or experiencing suffering, it could be you personally, or it could be a grandmother died, or you found out your mother has breast cancer, whatever it might be. The secular answer, and again, the Catholic answer is different. There is no secular version of redemptive suffering. So what I'm concerned is we took this money from the federal government, and I don't think this was by design of the federal government. They just put out the money for everybody. They spend it any way they want. But because there's not an adequate supply of Catholic psychologists and school counselors and psychiatrists, we end up hiring a bunch of secular people that don't agree with any of their first premises. Forget about, I used to say, they don't agree with everything from human AV day forward, right? Now they don't even agree with Genesis, right? So like, this is the whole kit and caboodle. So I think that's a really, I haven't been able to solve that in my five years. I started and I've been recruiting people at a Divine Mercy University down in Virginia and Franciscan University, both of whom have rock solid programs that I think people can trust in. But, um, you know, and, and, and I actually had people at other Catholic colleges suggesting that I not recruit out of their colleges. But I think people have to be very careful on something as intimate as a school counseling conversation, uh, that you have the person in there and the parents have to be, the schools have to send the message that this is not a fully confidential conversation in a school context. Parents of the, we believe is an article of faith that parents are the first educators of their children. They have to be a partner in what medical care or mental health services their children receive. And we cannot be complicit in keeping secrets from parents that concern their children. These are very important decisions and a parent has to be fully aware. So I, I've been preaching the gospel on that one across all of our schools, but we, we have a huge talent problem there that has to be solved. And if you were well, trying to destroy, if you were trying to destroy a generation of children, I can't think of a more sinister way to do it uh, than to do it, taking a child at their most vulnerable moment and leading them astray. Well, and I think that's, you know, and I think a lot of parents of kids in secular schools, that, that's been a huge thing, right? Since COVID, like they actually started hearing when they were walking by their kid on the laptop, they were starting to hear what teachers were actually teaching. And they were hearing some of these disturbing stories of, of parent or of teachers talking to their child, especially about sexual issues that they had no business talking to them about. And so I think that kind of leads into what you're saying that we can't, uh, especially going back to the abuse crisis and the abuse scandal, um, you know, we can't keep going down that path. Um, so yeah, and no, I think that's, uh, no, I think it's an excellent point. I want to ask you, uh, it, it occurred to me when you were talking, you know, I was thinking, um, you know, Cardinal O'Malley is getting, uh, I think he's already turned his letter in. Yes. Um, he'll be, no, so he, he turned in, he's turning 80 in June. So he, oh, he turned, turned his letter five years ago. Okay. Um, he's, he's very close with the Holy father. He's chairman of the, or whatever the title is of the uh, Pontifical Commission on Protection of Minors. So he sees them, you know, every month. So he handed it personally and the okay. Pope, you know, rejected the resignation. Um, and now he's up against 80. There's not a technical requirement that people quit at 80, but they lose their voting rights in the conclave. So there is a tradition that when a uh, cardinal, bishop, archbishop hits 80, they tend to uh, be replaced. So we have not gotten word. I don't think the Cardinal has yet on what his fate will be 
that's totally in the hands of the Holy Father. But what it is I'm moving on at the end of the school year is I anticipate that he'll be moving on uh, at the end of the school year. And I think we've engaged in a fantastic partnership over the last five years. And I'm not sure that I want to, I would want to do this job with anyone other than him. So I think it's a, it's a good time to kind of, to walk off the stage here. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking, you know, um, with, I mean, cause when you came on board, I mean, he must've, he was sort of anticipating that he wasn't going to, you know, go on forever. And there was probably a good likelihood you might've, this hire might've been his last superintendent. Um, I, I think it's just, I think it's really interesting and wonderful actually that he took a chance um, with you um, and, and sort of knowing that, you know, you were going to do this, um, you know, you, you've, you've affected a lot of change in Boston. Um, why do you think that was? I mean, he could have, he could have done what a lot of bishops do, just kind of done a safe pick and kind of walked off the stage, as you said, without, you know, a lot of commotion. Um, but you know, why do you think he was willing to do something different, you know, during his last, uh, you know, last, last bit at the helm? You know, what's funny about that? I've never actually asked him that question. <laughs> I'm afraid he might say he made a mistake, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there are a lot of, you know, big superintendent jobs open now. San Francisco to me is the most exciting mm -hmm. one that's open right now. And I know they're in the heading towards their final stages. I've tried to encourage people to apply for the job that aren't in a narrow sense qualified for it because there were about three dozen candidates who applied at the same time I did, and they all had the typical qualifications. My argument in my job interview, which I, which must have been compelling to some people on the committee or I wouldn't have gotten the job, is if you want a repeat of the last 60 years of decline, then hire somebody exactly like the people mm -hmm. that brought you 60 years of decline. I just think we're at a moment that the place needs to be, you know, shaken up a little bit and you need to get somebody who not just has and, and education skills. There's no doubt I would have been, you know, if I hadn't run schools before and had really high results, then I probably wouldn't have gotten the job despite being an unconventional candidate. But uh, so I'm not saying you don't, I'm not arguing that you don't need any experience to have this job, but I think you need broader experience than just getting an EDD you know, which an educational doctorate or a mm -hmm. master's in this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I think you have to have strong financial skills, a sense of strategy, really strong ability to execute against that strategy. And that stuff simply isn't taught in education school, virtually no education school. A lot of it's taught in business schools. So mm -hmm. uh, I've been talking to some business schools. I've also sat down with all the education schools in our market just to give them kind of what I think is missing from their preparation. And mm -hmm. so we went through, for example, I, I, we had no idea that COVID was going to happen, right? My last job was as a lobbyist. And I last two years was a lobbyist in DC. We went down when Trump first got elected. Think, well, all the Republicans agree in school choice. This will be easy. This will take us like five minutes, kind of underestimating the chaos that descended upon the city. So two years later, when the you know, the midterm elections, the politics on school choice changed dramatically. That's when I departed. So when I got appointed, a lot of people said they hired a DC lobbyist, like, are they crazy? And then COVID happens. And then we ended up needing somebody who knew about Catholic schools to lobby on the Hill to get, you know, our share. And what I argue to people is like, the money's going to be spent. Do you want to give it all to the unionized schools or you want to like distribute it proportionally? We ended up getting across a couple of bills about $5 billion. 
which is for all non-public schools around the country. But at that moment, we got in Boston 100 million a year just here. So at that moment, suddenly some people said, oh, maybe we should have hired a TC lobbyist, right? So you don't, you don't necessarily know, like if you have a diverse set of skills, which skills you're gonna need. I, I've, uh, I spent a large part of my life in advocacy and politics. Those are not unrelated skills to surviving in a church. But it's also the job is the job has very little <clears throat> power in the sense that you can't really command people. Everything about education is voluntary. The kids, you could force a kid to be in a chair. You can't force them to actually listen. You could force them to hear what you say, but not to really like take it to heart. You can't force parents to hand over their money. You can't force teachers to teach there. They can make a lot more money somewhere else. So if you're going to do a system-wide change on a decentralized system, you have to have the ability to articulate a vision and lead people towards that vision. Um, that that skill set is not is taught in politics, uh, and is you know I spent a good amount of time on grassroots organizing. It's not something you get by being a classroom teacher or by you know going to an education school. I'm not dismissing the, the whatever people learn doing that, but it's not that. And similarly. We're in the middle of a financial and economic crisis as a church. So you have to be able to read a financial statement. So whatever skills you have that you bring to the table, and I did this myself, there are lots of things I know a lot less about than other people. Like I'm not the best curriculum guy, you know, in the Boston area, but we hired a person who knows that stuff more. I hired a finance person who knows kind of finance, you know, the Catholic school finance and operation. We have a person who does all the different federal funding streams, which, you know, I don't have to know myself in great detail. I need to know them in broad brush. So I think people who don't have the normal credentials should jump into the pool with the understanding. I've said this to archbishops and bishops. When you hire somebody non-traditional, you're going to have to hire people around them to fill in their blanks. Yeah. But, but when you hire somebody with a typical education degree, you're going to have to hire a bunch of people to fill in their blanks. And it seems to me that the core leadership skills are strategy, execution, ability to sell, uh, to sell, and you know an understanding of the financial thing that props the whole thing up. So, you know, I, I have had this unrelenting push on making the schools more Catholic. Uh, I, I joked I should have put on my business card, you know, put the Catholic back in Catholic schools. Not everybody liked that phrase because they thought I was being disparaging to the past. But I think it's really important to put that front and center. But I also have cleaned up the schools economically. We have a lot of schools that were in the wrong place. We had kind of a portfolio. With, if you think of it as a stock portfolio, we had a lot of dogs that people should have let go of a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we did that. And then we and we're trying to make the pivot to invest in success rather than investing in value. Virtually every diocese spends massive amount of money trying to prop up schools that everybody knows cannot be around five years from now, partly because of massive population shifts. We have 75% of the Catholics are outside of the tech corridor that surrounds Boston. 75% of our school buildings are in the city of Boston or, or nearby. So oh. that's because of massive flight out to the suburbs, which has happened everywhere. But here, because mandatory racial busing that they did in the 70s, you had massive middle-class flight to the suburbs. So our buildings simply aren't where the kids are anymore. And in Boston, in particular, you have a lot of single individuals who, you know, may have a dog or a cat, but they don't plan on having any kids anytime soon. 
So the public school district is saying they're going to, they're over time going to eliminate 50% of their school buildings. That's how dramatic the demographic wow. shifts are. So those are the kind of things that aren't taught in education school. And so that's why I think, I think it's really important for cardinals, archbishops and bishops, not to just hand over to their Catholic school office, the decision on who the candidate should be for the next guy or the next gal, but they should really think what kind of person are they looking for? What skills do they need? And I might've been the right person for this time, but maybe 10 years from now, I wouldn't be the right person for this assignment. Hmm. So I think Boston was at a moment where it needed a change agent. That won't always be true. A lot of things have been cleaned up, but uh, that's the decision that I think people have to reflect upon. I think this is a good segue talking about your qualifications to talk about what qualifications we should be looking at in our teaching faculty. So you have launched this tremendous program uh, in Boston called the Thomas More Fellowship, and you are recruiting young people, college graduates from all over the country and asking them to come to Boston to train them to teach in Boston schools. So can you just start with what qualities you're looking for in teachers and sure. also maybe just speak a little bit. Um, I know that you were uh, going from school to school, recruiting on campus, uh, and there was a, a, a small group of schools that um, I, I, I think I've, I've heard you talk about um, that you considered to be superior to some of the other colleges out there. Could you just speak to the different ways that uh, young people are being developed on some college campuses um, to prepare them to, to, to be effective teachers in Catholic schools that maybe other uh, aspiring teachers are, are not um, receiving on, on other campuses. Sure, right. First, I, I think to determine what the qualities are you're looking for, you have, to, you have to reflect on what the assignment is, right? So I think what we've done is, is equivalent to, say a billionaire buys a football team, hires me, I know nothing about sports and says, I want you to field the best people you can find and money's no object. I go out the next day, fly to Wimbledon and hire the best tennis players in the country. I got the best talent. They're gonna get cream students they set foot on the field. So, so our, our game here that we're playing is not really a game, but our exercise here is we're setting the kids on a path to eternal salvation. So math is important, English is important, history is important and all the rest. But what's most important is helping these children put God at the center of life and setting them on that path. So if you believe that the number one goal of a Catholic school is to evangelize children, and particularly in the context of a church where you have, and this is true of all major, massive disaffiliation. By the time kids, Catholics, who, people who start out as Catholics are 18, 86% of them walk away from the faith, 50% by the time they're 10 years old. So that's the challenge. So first you need somebody whose faith is fully alive within them. And so I'm looking for people who believe, right? So I joke, this is kind of like the Federalist Society was trying to find judges, right? They're looking for people who are young and people believe, right? So, but, but here I'm looking for people who believe specifically in our faith. And I've had people say to me like, why don't you just recruit the best and the brightest? I'm going like, because our job is evangelizing the Catholic faith. Okay, we wouldn't hire a priest who is Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. We should hire teachers. And I'm not saying we know, we hire people of multiple faiths in our schools, 80% of them are Catholic. But, but the people that I'm spending my time on, 
to recruit are people that are fully alive. So for starters, I go to the schools recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, which I'm a big fan of. My favorite school, no disrespect to the others, because partly it's like asking somebody what flavor of ice cream do you like, right? I like all ice cream, but my favorite flavor is Thomas Aquinas College. I was just on the campus last week and just reaffirmed, you know, I've said publicly I would hire every single graduate of that school. And we could because we hire a couple hundred people a year. They graduate about 100. So for argument's sake, say if I had a 10% failure rate. So a 90% success rate is much better than what we're having now on hiring a brand new teacher. And then I also go to the most competitive colleges in the country, uh, Princeton, uh, Duke, uh, UPenn, Cornell, Columbia University. And working with Catholic apostolates on those campuses, I identify people that are living the faith in a really serious way. I don't just generically hire anybody that I find on campus. And then I also, I, I don't just assume because they go to those, they're involved in those activities that they're what I'm looking for. Like they go through a very extensive interview process, right? And then, so that's, that's part one, right? Second, I'm looking for people who are intellectually curious. Now that sounds funny, like why do you even have to ask that? We keep prattling on in public and private schools about lifelong learning. But if you have teachers who haven't picked up a book uh, or read a book in the last six months, they're not likely to inspire kids to be intellectually curious. So I, I joke, this is the one addiction I'm in favor of, which is somebody already has five books on their nightstand that they're reading, you know, kind of simultaneously switching back and forth. Uh, and, and their spouse generally looking at them like they're nuts. And then they cannot walk by an independent bookstore without buying five more books. Like that's the only addiction I can get behind. And so that's the kind of personality, the person just completely in love with learning, whether it's about theology, philosophy, art, music, architecture. It really, like when I ask people what they're reading, I don't, there's no right answer to it. I just want that they're reading, they're really intellectually engaged because I think that's infectious when kids see that and the teacher says, oh my gosh, I just read this most amazing book or I'm reading, you know, that uh, I'm reading a play by Shakespeare and let me read you these two, three lines. It's still like, so I've read lines, uh, like I read, this was actually in an essay, somebody explained their faith applying for St. Thomas More. The opening line was, one cannot know me without knowing the faith that I profess. Now, I mm -hmm. wish I wrote that line. That's a beautifully written line. Another one was, I can honestly say the happiest days of my life have been before the blessed sacrament. So I appreciate the, the faith that underlies those two sentences, but I also appreciate the wordsmithing, you know? So it's like, this is somebody who really knows how to write. So, uh, so I think that's really important. The third, and this used to be taken for granted, is work ethic. So when I look at somebody's resume, and I've seen this at Christendom, I've seen this at Thomas Aquinas, I've seen it at other uh, Cardinal Newman schools in particular, they often give people campus jobs. So like if you go to a TAC resume, you'll see maintenance or, you know, they worked in the pool or they were a lifeguard or they were doing landscaping or whatever it might be, right? And sometimes people think like, well, that's not very lofty. I should say I interned in a law firm or what have you, right? But to me, the grubbier the job is, the better because being a first year teacher is really, really hard work and you're gonna be frustrated. So I need somebody who's willing to strap on the cross and endure a certain amount of suffering to get through that first year. Because there's not a single teacher who didn't start out as a first year teacher, no matter where they came from. And it's really, really difficult. 
So I want somebody who had an idiot as a boss. I want somebody who had to pick cigarettes out of urinals or whatever. I want people that have done stuff that not particularly fun to do, but they showed up every day. They did it. They kept a smile on their face and you know, they save money for college, whatever they're using the money for. But uh, that's what I'm looking for. And then obviously personality is a big part because I'm not reducing teacher to performance art. Like our job is to entertain kids. But if kids are going to listen to you, particularly if you're a homeroom teacher for seven hours a day, like I wouldn't listen if he came back to life, Winston Churchill for seven hours a day, right? That's really, really tall order to keep kids engaged for that amount of time. So the person has to really love kids, really, really love kids. So I'm drawn to people from, not exclusively, but if somebody comes from a large family, um, say a homeschool family, and they've helped their parents, you know, tutor kids or just take care of all the activities in the house, what they already know about child development, about how many multiple personalities kids can have, even within the same genetic pool, is invaluable experience coming into a classroom. So I think people don't realize there's lots of things that they learn just through living their life that are super valuable. Last point I make to jump ahead is I always argue to people that the best experience for being a parent is being a teacher because you do learn child development. You do learn you can't discipline all children the same way. And how do you discipline somebody without destroying their spirit? Not actually, it sounds easy until you're a parent and it becomes tricky depending on the personality of your children. So uh, those are all experiences. So I joke, like, work out all of your mistakes on somebody else's kids. <laughs> and then your kids will need a lot less help later in life if you figure out all this stuff. And a bunch of our fellows have already, I just found out the other day, that two of the fellows uh, just got engaged over Christmas. So the other thing is by attracting faithful people and by creating a fellowship, the reason I use that word is they're all hanging together in community. They're all living together initially for uh, between Memorial Day till August 1st and housing, dormitory housing, I, I pay for or the archdiocese rather pays for. Um, so everybody gets to know each other. It's single gender, by the way. Uh, and then uh, anyway, so the result of that is people have developed authentically good friendships. But in a couple cases, people have found uh, people that I think are going to end up being their soulmates because it's really hard once you leave college to find somebody that you would, if you want to raise your children in our faith, you could go to a bar a thousand times, the odds you're going to meet a spouse that is going to raise children the way you want your children raised is pretty close to zero. So, but if you go into teaching and you're surrounded by people who are just as faithful and you're getting to see them interact with children, that's a pretty good place to find your soulmate. So, not, I haven't married off all of them, and I promise I don't do any direct matchmaking, but I have created conditions. I, I joke that there are children, when they're older, some of these children, I'm going to go up to them and say, you literally would not exist if I had not created the St. Thomas More fellows because your parents never would have met. But, uh, there, but the point is when you do this and you invest in this, a lot of the fruits can't be anticipated. And so, and even when people leave Boston and go somewhere else, we're lighting a candle of faith in as many classrooms as possible. If that candle moves somewhere else, they'll then touch other lives. And then those people will touch other lives. So I, I think it's hard to measure exactly what the impact is, is going to be long-term, but it's, and then we train them. I should explain, we train them over the summer. And a lot of the principals that have taken uh, these, I keep calling them kids, even though they're adults, 
um, have said they're just as good as any first year teacher that they've seen. And they're much, uh, almost all of them are much better read. Tom, Tom when you go on account, how do you, uh, you know, I, I imagine they announce that you're coming maybe, but yeah. do you typically, are you- <laughs> Otherwise I get arrested just randomly going up to people. <laughs> Hey, want to come with me to Boston? Who's, who's the guy staying <laughs> on campus leering at young, young, young people? Um, no, but I mean, do you, uh, do you, do you get folks coming to you that like, I've never thought about teaching, but maybe this seems interesting. You know, how do you, um, do you, do you look for certain majors? Do you, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I have favorites. Like, I think I, I, I have a soft spot for theology and philosophy majors. And the reason is, and this goes back to intellectual curiosity, the kind of people that never thought, think about first premises, like who am I, who created me, why am I here, who created the world, who, yeah, how the universe end mm -hmm. up the way it is, right? So theology and philosophy majors like think about that all the time. If you could go through life and never think about any of those questions, the chance that you're going to bring somebody to the faith is, I think, you know, unlikely to say the yeah. least, right? So. Um, but I, 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 if, when I go into a campus for argument's sake, like Thomas Aquinas, I'll have like 45 people in front of me at one, they have two camps at one campus. Um, I'll convince probably about 30 of them to seriously consider becoming a teacher. And then I'll get a yield of like three or four because I'm trying to bring them to a specific geographic space. If this was like true all across the country, the recruiting effort then I probably would get 25 out of the 30. So, uh, and most out of those 30, two or three have given a moment's thought to it. And the people have thought, well, I really want to go to Thomas Aquinas for whatever reason. You know, I like great books. I want, I like work from original texts. I want to go to a real strong Catholic community. But they thought because they made that decision, it precluded them from teaching because they didn't get an education major. Mm. And including a lot of people. And, and the beauty of a school like Thomas Aquinas College is what they call tutors, which you would call somewhere else a professor, but they're trying to, you know, basically, you know, suggest kind of the English model of the relationship between the tutor and the student. Um, they're considered such an exalted level in that college mm -hmm. that like a lot of people want to become teachers because they want to be just like this amazing cast of tutors they've had. And I've, I've of course, both camps, I've spent a full six days spread across just sitting in classroom after classroom after classroom after classroom. And it's the most, most astonishing thing I've ever seen in my life. I would, I, I joked, I was, I played Powerball before my last visit. I said, if I win, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit my job and, and enroll myself in Thomas Aquinas. I said, your admissions people probably would say I'm not qualified. But I'm pretty sure your development people would suggest you let me in. But uh, but it's just the most astonishing place. So and there are other I, I was down at Christendom. First of all, I don't know if you've seen their new chapel. Oh, my gosh. No. It is absolutely stunningly like uh, just your jaw drops you when you mm -hmm. walk in. Uh, it's really, really beautiful. And I've been uh, other college as well. Franciscan. Um, I'm not into kind of the more charismatic stuff. It's not my personal flavor. But to go into a praise and worship thing that started at eight, I walked in at 10 o'clock because I was interviewing people and it was still going on strong. I left at 1030 um, and it was still going on. And a couple hours later, I came because I couldn't go to sleep. I was amazed at what I like, 
what college campus in the entire country has several hundred kids, you know, completely on fire, you know, for Jesus Christ at 10 o'clock at night, right? Mm -hmm. So I go into their adoration chapel, which is a replica of the one, the chapel within the chapel in uh, uh, Assisi in Italy. And thinking I'd be the only one at that hour, there's about 25 kids in there. And then I walk out a half hour later and nobody left while I was in there. And then seven more kids are walking down the sidewalk at 1230 in the morning. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. So that's why like, I have to get kids like this to teach in our schools. It's just their faith is so profoundly beautiful. And my, my faith as a convert has deepened dramatically since I've had this job, mostly one, we have amazing priests here, but mostly because the ex exposure to these, you know, kids in their mid, you know, like 22 to 25 that uh, just blow me away. Wow. Um, I want to pivot a little bit um, in our last few minutes, Tom, because I, I want to, uh, Kimberly and I talk about this a lot with Catholic education. I, I feel like we've gone in the last 50 years, especially, um, you know, I, Archbishop Kurtz, who used to be our board chair, used to say that, you know, Catholic education is, you know, one of the best kept secrets in, in, in America. Um, and it's because it's done such amazing things. I mean, it's taken people from the boat to the boardroom. I mean, immigrants, you know, generations of immigrants. But I feel like in the last 50 years, like we've kind of started chasing the secular dog. We've, we've chased secular education, which has actually been in decline. And I've, I've never quite understood that. Like we had this amazing system, if you want to call it a system, that was just second to none. And we started chase doing something, replicating and emulating someone else. I mean, why do you think we've done that? And how do we get away from that? I mean, because I, I think the Thomas More Fellowship is one of those important ways with teaching. But just, you know, with accreditation and licensure and, you know, all these different things. Why, why did we go that way? And how do we get out of that? How do we get out of that mindset? Yeah. So in, in the case of Boston uh, or Massachusetts, they don't regulate private schools at all. So we're not subject to common core or any of their certification requirements whatsoever. But I was surprised when I got here that a lot of people were doing it anyway. So I made clear on the first day, I mean, literally the first day I was here that uh, there'd be no archdiocesan certification requirements whatsoever. I do give principals the ability to set what the standards are for the own teachers they hire, um, because ultimately they're going to be held accountable for it. I think the big thing is, I've talked to you know dozens and dozens of principals about this issue, is the view is uh, Catholicism just doesn't have the sway, even in Boston, that it once had. A lot of people don't believe anymore. And so the biggest market out there are non-believers or kind of more casual Catholics, if you will. And so they figure, well, why would you not market to your biggest audience, if you will. And I think the, the reason is really simple, because the only thing we do that the public schools can't do is preach the word of God. They teach, like, I, I say to people like, you know, somebody says they wanted a Google, you know, one-to-one -one Google Chromebook ratio in the school. I'm like, do you think you could buy more technology than Wellesley Public Schools? You know, seriously? Like mm -hmm. they're probably spending $30,000, $40,000 per pupil of tax money. Um, and so, Every single thing that we try to mimic or parrot, the other team, if you will, has much more money to do the same thing and better, right? Because they can buy more gadgets than we possibly could. So, and I'm not opposed to technology or teaching technology at all. 
but I think it's become kind of this new idol that we're worshiping. And I think it makes more sense that the highest idol we worship is kind of the intellect and faith and not kind of machinery because we're entering a time actually, not to digress on this, but we're entering a time in which moral judgment is a lot more important than technology. And technology has given rise to all kinds of moral judgments in which we have very few people that have actually been trained to think through the moral judgments that technology and AI and all that stuff is, uh, is gonna suggest. So if you look at a typical Catholic day, it looks exactly like a public school day, except we've tacked on, in our case, 50 minutes a day of religion, a mass once a month. We have a few schools uh, like Opus Day schools that are a daily mass, but and we have a couple schools that do weekly mass, but mostly mass once a month. So what we're doing is we're, we're pretending to, or saying we're trying to get kids with God at the center of their life, but God is not at the center of the curriculum. This is true across the entire country. So I'm not making fun of particular mm -hmm. schools, right? So we're basically have said, if you look at our curriculum and our schedule, right? we're putting God as a footnote to every day. Much in the way you could live your life as a Catholic, like you go to church on Sunday, you're giving an hour to God, and the rest of the week you're gonna, you know, your life is gonna be dedicated to all the secular gods, you know, narcissism, materialism, et cetera, right? And so uh, I think we have to embed the Catholic intellectual tradition across all the subjects. And to be honest, you can't, you can't in an intellectually honest way teach art, music, architecture, history, philosophy, uh, rights of women, uh, science, without reference to the Catholic Church. The, even the, the church's position on divorce was at the time an incredibly progressive position to take because women were basically treated like property. So if they got divorced by a man and they, they, didn't, they didn't have any property, they had no wealth, they basically were becoming like cast in the streets like the homeless of the day. So, and the church, it's amazing you know, that we, we take this position 2000 years ago and the church like, no, like everybody's created equally in the eyes of God, not just men or not just property class. And so uh, so how do you how do you teach about all that stuff and pretend that Western civilization didn't occur, that the Catholic Church didn't create Western civilization, that we didn't create the rule of law? So almost everything, you know, that people, you know, say that they admire was created by the Catholic Church, whether people realize it or not. Mm -hmm. We also have, in terms of kind of social justice, if you will, we have the biggest global footprint of anybody in terms of service to the poor, the dispossessed, and the marginalized, and, and the most consistent set of moral teachings. So I, I don't know why everybody isn't. And so this is my little, you know, not just because they had me write the forward, but Here's a book, right? Educating for Eternity, Making Every Class Catholic by, hold up a little more, by Brett Salkeld. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Mm. And that's, that's me down here. <laughs> but, uh, but the idea of the book is to how to figure out to make every class Catholic. And I think it's a really good idea. And it's something that is probably a lifetime's worth of work. But in the, if people setting up new schools should start out this way, and people that their schools aren't that way should look at like St. Jerome Academy in uh, Hyattsville, Maryland, which they started out as kind of a run of the mill Catholic school that almost went belly up. And then they they embraced the Catholic liberal tradition. And I mean, liberal with a you know, kind of a classical sense, yeah. not in a uh, political sense. And uh, it's now a spectacular school that people are beating down the doors to get into. And then people literally are moving 
to be a reasonable distance from that school. So I think if you look at the Catholic schools that are doing the best, we have a St. Benedict's Classical Academy. They're going like gangbusters. They're about to build the most spectacularly beautiful uh, classically designed building here. But the schools that have leaned into it, contrary to what people think, are actually doing really well. Now, we do have schools that are not quite there uh, that are doing well also, doing well for other reasons. But I think the future is, uh, the future is the schools to become more Catholic um, as a distinguishing feature, part one, and, and maybe part, reverse the order. Um, but the most important to do that is it's the, what we owe these children and what we owe God. Um, so, and then all the other stuff should be built around that. Mm. So I'm not saying that in five years, I've convinced everybody here that this is the way to go. Um, but I've, I've been very consistent in, in kind of preaching this any place I go. And I think, I, I think I'm absolutely right on this one. And we're stronger today, despite me, you know, prattling on about all this stuff. It hasn't destroyed enrollment. We're the strongest we've been on enrollment in a long time. We gained a lot of enrollment uh, during COVID, about 4,400 kids, and we've been steady since then. And before that, it was 65 years of decline year after year after year. We were losing about 5% of our kids every year. So uh, we've made the schools more Catholic. I've been very determined to uh, have very rigorous faith standards for the selection of uh, principals. I've replaced 75% of the parochial school principals in the last four and a half or so years. Um, and we're much more economically stronger than probably we've ever been in the last 65 years. Well, Tom, huge congratulations to you for everything you've accomplished in Boston and everything you're doing for these young men and women who are coming into Boston to teach at your wonderful Catholic schools. Uh, we want to give you the last word here um, to say anything that you would like to say to our listeners um, about Catholic education in general, about the church, or anything that you'd like to share. Yeah, I, my, my closing message is we're, we're literally a generation away from losing the church and going the way of Europe, in which the churches are just museum pieces and beautiful backdrops for weddings. And the whole game is saving the generation that's in our schools now. And the only organization well positioned to save these children and their souls are the Catholic schools. We have them from preschool to 12th grade for 16,000 hours. This isn't about a brief elevator pitch. So we have them at a time in which they're open and we should do everything we can to staff the schools in a way. And just a closing note to to all the bishops, archbishops, and cardinals around the country, is every time you have a chance to change uh, a superintendent, you have a chance to change the direction of your Catholic school system. And so if you want to go in a different direction, you know, personnel is policy. And, uh, you know, there's a roadmap for how to, how to get to a different place if they're interested. Thank you, Tom. That's wonderful. Um, grateful for your work. And, um, yeah, I hope we get more superintendents that uh, that follow your path. So with that, uh, Tom, we always close in prayer. So Kimberly, if you want to uh, close us in prayer and we'll um, take it from there. Thanks for coming on, Tom. It was a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Enjoy. Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless. Thanks, Tom.